I want to do a couple of messages that talk about the circumstances around the death of Christ. This morning we'll be looking at Matthew 2, Matthew chapter 2. You know, uh, let me quote also from Galatians chapter 4, which I've also used as a Christmas text in the past, where Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. I like how he blends the gospel with the Christmas message, that God sent His Son to redeem those who were under the law. And you find that wherever Scripture mentions the birth of Christ, close by there is always some mention of the gospel, that His name was to be called Jesus because He would save His people from their sins. And we don't often get that message at Christmas time. We, we think about the baby in the manger and the wise men and all that, and don't connect it with the fact that the whole point of this is for Christ to save His people from their sins. But it's also helpful, I think, to look at the, the circumstances of all of that. And this morning I want to focus on you know, where Paul starts there, the fullness of time. What made this the fullness of times? And, and the short answer is the Lord had providentially orchestrated all kinds of world events so that this was the perfect timing for Christ to come. And I want to look at that this morning from Matthew 1, and, and I want to start by calling your attention to who I think is the darkest character in the entire biblical account of Christmas, and that's Herod. Matthew 2 verse 1 says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. And since there's more than one character in the New Testament named Herod, I, I want to help you keep them straight. This Herod was Herod the Great. He's the most famous of all the Herods. He was the first king in the Herodian dynasty, and his father, and he, he was the father and the grandfather of all the other Herods that you read about in the New Testament. So don't confuse this Herod with the other Herods who come up later in the Gospels and the book of Acts. The Herod that is mentioned throughout the Gospel accounts is Herod Antipas. He's the, he's the son of this Herod, Herod the Great. He's the one who had John the Baptist killed, Herod Antipas. He's also the one who participated in the trial of Christ. He's the one who married his uh, sister-in-law or something like that. The Herod that's mentioned in Acts 12 is a different Herod yet. That's Herod Agrippa, uh, Herod Agrippa I. He's the one, uh, I love his ending because he's eaten by worms, uh, and I, I've always loved that, eaten by worms. But this is Herod the Great. He's the subject of our study this morning, and he is the easiest one to remember because he appears only here in Matthew chapter 2, and he dies at the end of the chapter, verse 19. And secular history records quite a bit about him. If you've ever visited the Holy Land, you've seen things that he built. He came to the throne in the year 37 B.C., while the Roman Empire was still sorting out all the political factions that were fighting for control after the assassination of Julius Caesar. Uh, which took place in 44 B.C., and then Herod comes to the throne in 37. Two famous Romans whose names should be familiar to you somewhat are Mark Antony and Octavian. The Roman Senate later gave Octavian the title Augustus, meaning revered one. And so when the New Testament mentions Octavian in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it refers to him as Caesar Augustus. That's Octavian. Antony and Octavian were the two main rivals for control of the Roman Empire after Julius Caesar was murdered. If you've ever studied Roman history or, or even read Shakespeare, you know that Julius Caesar was murdered on March 15th, the Ides of March, in the year 44 BC by a conspiracy of men who were led by Caesar's own best friend, Brutus, and Mark Antony was Caesar's second in command. He was like the vice president. He was the vice emperor or whatever. Mark Antony made a powerful speech at Caesar's funeral in which he read Caesar's will to the people, and he stirred up the people of Rome to seek vengeance against Julius Caesar's killers. And then he organized an army to fight Brutus and bring all these assassins to justice. 
And Mark Antony naturally believed that he should be Caesar's successor to the throne. But Octavian was the nephew of Caesar and also his adopted son. And so he inherited all of Caesar's possessions. And he also believed that he should be heir to Caesar's throne. So after Julius Caesar's murdered, you've got this struggle between Octavian and Mark Antony. Who's going to be the next emperor? And unfortunately, Julius Caesar himself had not established an order of succession, and Roman politicians lined up pretty evenly. They were split like 50-50 between Antony and Octavian. And so in order to avoid a civil war, Octavian and Antony agreed between themselves to joint rule. Octavian remained in charge of Rome and the western half of the empire, and Antony took over the east, including Jerusalem and Egypt. Now, Mark Antony was a ruthless man. In the division of powers that followed the assassination of Julius Caesar, Mark Antony was given command of the army, and he was authorized to track down and eliminate everyone who had conspired to kill Julius Caesar. And that launched a military reign of terror in which thousands of people were executed. And during that campaign of vengeance and violence, Mark Antony formed an alliance with Herod. Antony must have liked Herod because Herod was a ruthless man. You see that from the New Testament account. Also, Herod had great political cunning. And with Antony's help, Herod also got political support from Octavian. In 40 BC, just four years after Julius Caesar's death, the Roman Senate declared Herod king of Judea. That's how he got that title. And it was left uh, to Herod himself to conquer and unify the various factions that claimed control of parts of the Holy Land. And so Herod undertook that job with great enthusiasm. He combined great military skill with his trademark brutality. And in a very short time, Herod was able to unite and subdue all the realm of Israel under his personal rule. And that's why Israel was under the thumb of Rome in the first century, thanks to Herod. But Herod was king and and not a Roman king. So there's a very tangled sort of political mess overseeing that. And the story of those years in the Roman Empire is well documented in secular history. Antony married Octavian's sister, whose name was Octavia. I guess their parents weren't really creative when it came to naming. (laughs) But that alliance began to unravel when Antony went to Egypt and fell in love with Cleopatra. This isn't just the movies. I mean, this was real life. And and he, he divorced Octavia and announced his intention to marry Cleopatra and make her the queen of Rome. Cleopatra, by the way, had already born a child by Julius Caesar. Sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? And Antony adopted Caesar's illegitimate son by Cleopatra. No doubt he thought that would strengthen his claim to Caesar's throne. And naturally, Octavian was furious about all of this because his sister gets spurned for Cleopatra, and he can see the political machinations whereby Mark Antony's trying to increase his power at Octavian's expense. And so Octavian stirred up the citizens of Rome against Mark Antony and started a civil war. And that is how the joint rulership between Octavian and Mark Antony ended. And so now you've got two contenders for the throne of Caesar. Mark Antony controls the Roman army, and he's a superb military strategist. Octavian is a novice when it comes to war, but he's he's a great politician, and he had the support of most of the Roman Senate and the people of Rome. And Herod, who's watching these events from Mark Antony's part of the kingdom, because he's in in the Holy Land, he naturally gave his support to Mark Antony. And the battle for control of the Roman Empire ultimately boiled down to one great naval battle at Actium in 31 BC. Octavian, Antony, and Cleopatra were all three present at this battle. Herod tried to get there with an army because he wanted to support Mark Antony's claim to the throne. But a war in Arabia diverted Herod's army, so he didn't get there in time. And in the end, Octavian's forces 
routed the navy of Antony and Cleopatra. When Antony and Cleopatra saw that they were about to lose this battle, they fled to Egypt. And when Octavian pursued them, even there, he went to Egypt to get them, they committed suicide rather than be captured. By most accounts, you know this, Cleopatra killed herself by inducing a poisonous snake to bite her. And Shakespeare, of course, romanticized and immortalized that whole story. By most ancient accounts, Mark Antony stabbed himself in the stomach, which turned out to be a bad way to kill yourself. It's a slow way to die. And so he died begging Cleopatra's priests to finish him off quickly. Mark Antony's death left Herod in an obviously difficult position. He had lent military and, f- and financial aid to Mark Antony, believing that Antony, because he was a skilled military leader, was going to defeat Octavian, and, uh, who was just a politician, Octavian. Octavian's victory, therefore, was kind of a shock, a surprise. And now that Antony was dead and Octavian had an unchallenged right to the throne over all the, the entire Roman Empire, Herod's power in Judea was suddenly in jeopardy. It's like he's in trouble. So Herod decided on a course of action that really epitomizes Herod's political savvy, and it illustrates his incredible ability to to turn almost any situation to his favor. When he found out that Octavian was on the island of Rhodes in the Mediterranean, he sailed there to meet him. And in fact, let me read you an account from secular history. This is from Josephus. Here's what happened. This is straight out of Josephus. Herod sailed to Rhodes, where Caesar then abode, and he came to him without his diadem, in other words, he set aside his throne, in the habit and appearance of a private person, but in his behavior as a king. He concealed nothing of the truth, in other words, he didn't try to cover up what he had done, but he spoke this way before the face of Octavian, O Caesar, Herod says, as I was made king of the Jews by Antony, so do I profess that I have used my royal authority entirely for his advantage, nor will I conceal this any further, that you would have certainly found me in arms and an inseparable companion of his had not the Arabians hindered me. However, I sent him as many auxiliaries as I was able and as much food as I could send. Nay, indeed, I did not desert my benefactor, but I gave him the best advice I was able. When I was no longer able to assist him in the war, And I told him that there was only one way of recovering his affairs, and that was to kill Cleopatra. And I promised him that if she were once dead, I would afford him money and walls for his security with an army and myself to assist him in his war against you. But his affections for Cleopatra stopped his ears, and I confess myself also to be defeated together with him. And with his last fortune, I have laid aside my diadem, his crown, And I am come here to you, having my hopes of safety in your virtue, and I desire that you would first consider how faithful a friend, and not whose friend, I have been." (laughs) That's pretty good, huh? And it worked. Josephus records that Octavian replied, "'Nay,' he says, "'you shall not only be in safety, but you shall also be a king, and that more firmly than you were before.'" For you are worthy to reign over a great many subjects by reason of the loyalty of your friendship. Now endeavor me to be equally constant in your friendship to me. I do therefore assure you that I will confirm the kingdom to you by decree. You will find no loss in the death of Antony. So Herod returns to Judea with his position even more secure than ever. And it was then that Herod began a number of massive building projects, what he's best remembered for today, actually. He built, for example, that impressive fortress at the top of Masada. Some of you have been there, and you can still get a sense, even today, how grand Herod's building projects were. This is on on the top of a rock in the middle of the desert. He built this massive fortress that was essentially self-supporting. One whole end of Masada was a lavish palace and a resort home for Herod and his family. And again, this fortress was capable of being totally self-sufficient. The top of Masada could grow enough food and collect enough water to house a garrison there without any kind of outside supplies 
indefinitely. If you know the story of Masada and how it had to be defeated, it was a long siege because it was hard to get up there in the first place. And once you were up there, you were safe and secure without needing any supplies from outside. But the most magnificent building project Herod ever undertook, the thing he is best remembered for, is the temple in Jerusalem. He built an opulent palace in Jerusalem. He, He built the Hippodrome for chariot racing. He built a theater and an amphitheater. But the thing that that really was his signature building project was that temple. He began building the temple in 19 B.C., 20 years before the, the, what we mark as the birth of Christ. It really probably wasn't the year Christ was born, but 19 B.C., he starts the temple, and it was dedicated about nine years later, but the work on the temple continued for another 80 years. That, that temple is the same one that provoked the wonder and awe of the disciples in Mark 13. Mark 13, verse 1, they they go through, they're amazed by this project, this building project. It's a spectacular building by all accounts. Every other building in Jerusalem was yellow sandstone. That's true even to this day. All the buildings of a certain size or larger have to be built from local stone so that everything is a yellowish color that you associate with Jerusalem. But Herod had the temple finished with gleaming stark white marble and inlaid then that marble with massive amounts of gold. Now understand, the temple building was not provoked by any love that Herod had for God. It was primarily a political gesture that he undertook to to appease the Jews. Herod was a master of, uh, like, like you see from that letter he wrote, he's a master of politics and and he could pretend this sort of magnanimity towards the Jews when it suited his purpose. During famines, for example, he was well known to sell the riches from his own palaces to buy food for his people, and he used his influence with Caesar Augustus to obtain privileges for the Jews that, who were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. He was not Jewish himself. He was apparently a descendant of Esau, an Edomite, or in first century terms, he's called an Idumean, Idumean. But for political reasons, he was normally careful not to offend the religious sensitivities of his Jewish subjects. And, and if that's the only side of him you ever saw, you might think, hey, he's a pretty nice guy, you know? But at the same time, he had this appalling, ruthless mean streak. He he dealt especially severely with insurrections or any kind of perceived threat to his power. In fact, he killed some of his own sons because he feared that they wanted to take over his throne. Caesar Augustus used to say of Herod that it would be better to be his pig than to be his son. When Herod knew he was dying, he ordered the leading citizens of Jerusalem to be brought together in the Hippodrome, and he ordered his henchmen to kill all of them the moment he died. He said he just wanted to make sure that there would be genuine grief in Israel when he died, and so this was a severely twisted man. Herod was one of the most prideful, arrogant rulers who ever lived. Pride was his besetting sin, and his enormous pride explains why He was capable of such brutality on the one hand, and yet generous actions on the other. Pride was the motive behind everything he did, the good as well as the bad, so that what looked like generosity was actually nothing more than a scheme to win political allies. Now, all the great building projects, these were monuments to Herod's own self-centeredness, big temples that really represented his, his ego more than anything else. And the vicious streak that manifested itself whenever anyone seemed to be a threat to his supremacy, that was driven by pride as well. Herod was feared by his enemies, despised by most of his own subjects because of his ruthless pride. He was able to keep order in Judea only by annihilating his opposition and murdering everyone whom he perceived as a threat. So the account of him we have here in Matthew 2 is exactly in harmony with the way secular history remembers this man. Now, let's get into the text of Matthew 2. This chapter introduces us to Herod, 
and sets before us three stark contrasts to his pride. When you compare Herod to the other characters in Matthew 2, the sinfulness of Herod's pride becomes all the more obvious, and that is what I want to point out to you this morning. We'll look at the humility of the Magi, the lowliness of Joseph, and the meekness of Jesus Himself. And and I want to contrast all of those with Herod's pride, and I think you'll see how dangerous and distasteful the sin of pride can be. Pride is the, the most satanic of sins, and that is clearly seen in the way pride manifests itself in Herod's life and record. Here are the biblical contrasts that help set Herod's pride in perspective. First is the humility of the Magi. Let me read the first 12 verses of Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and he's quoting here from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, "'And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own, to their own country by another way. Now, these men are called wise men. In the text I just read, also in the King James Version, the, the ESV is what I just read to you. But the Greek word is magos, magos, and uh, the NIV and the NASB call them magi. Magi is a technical term for a group of Middle Eastern sorcerers basically. Magi, it's a, the, the term wise men suggests that they were philosophers. They were actually more like astrologers than philosophers. You know, we sing Christmas carols like, We Three Kings of Orient, but that song is wrong on two counts. First, there's no mention of how many there were. They brought three kinds of gifts, but that doesn't mean there were three of them. Second, they weren't kings, even though they, they may have served in a king's palace. We don't know precisely where they came from. Matthew only says they came from the east, which could have meant as far away as India. One 16th century Portuguese source suggested that the Magi were actually ancient Hindu Brahmins. I like that idea, but it actually seems more likely that the Magi came from Persia, That's the area that makes up Iran and Iraq today. Magi originated in Persia, and they had been a significant part of Persian culture for centuries. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus says that the Magi were a priestly caste of the Medes. They were a sect of astrologers, astrologer priests, associated with Zoroastrianism, which is an ancient religion that uh, flourished in Persia for at least six centuries before Christ. So it's a really old religion. Zoroastrianism survives today even among the Parsis in India. And the religion of the Magi paralleled Judaism in some significant ways. They they were monotheistic. They, They offered blood sacrifices. They roasted sacrificed animals on the altar, and both worshiper and priests ate the roasted meat. Their their priesthood was hereditary. 
like the Levitical priesthood. They also had strict dietary laws governing clean and unclean animals, and they had specific rituals governing how to touch and dispose of dead bodies. But those similarities were satanic counterfeits. The Magi's religion, though it seemed to parallel Judaism in many ways, it was rooted actually in superstition and fear, not in truth revealed by God. Woven into their religion were all kinds of sorcery and astrology and other forms of soothsaying and witchcraft. In other words, they were occult practitioners. And in fact, our word magic comes from their name. And still, the magi were considered the scholars and the wise men of their time. So wise men isn't a bad translation, really. Early Persian kings were required to master the wisdom of the Magi. It was like a college education. And their teachings became known as the law of the Medes and the Persians. And that very expression is used in Scripture in Esther chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 6. The wisdom of the Magi became the highest legal code in Persia, and it was considered unalterable. So the Magi were much more than just religious leaders. They were also the mathematicians and the philosophers and the scientists and doctors and legal authorities of their culture. Our word magistrate is actually derived from the word magi. Magi are mentioned even in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 39 verse 3 refers to Nergal Sarazer the rabmag or the chief magi, and he was uh, the chief magi in Nebuchadnezzar's court. You'll also find the magi are mentioned several times in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, verse 20, Daniel chapter 2, verse 2, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 5, verse 11. And in most translations today, the word is translated magicians, but it is the word for magi. And it's significant that the Old Testament mentions Magi in Daniel's time, because you'll recall that Daniel served in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Daniel 1, verses 3 through 5, records that Daniel was one of several Hebrew young men whom Nebuchadnezzar singled out because of their wisdom. He was a smart guy, Daniel, and it apparently showed. So Nebuchadnezzar placed him among his own Magi and encouraged Daniel and his friends to share the riches of wisdom from the Hebrew nation with the Magi, Nebuchadnezzar's own wise men. And in fact, Daniel distinguished himself in Nebuchadnezzar's eyes by interpreting a dream, which is the very thing the Magi were supposed to be the best at. Daniel 2 records how Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that troubled him, but he forgot the dream. And so he asked the Magi, what was the dream that troubled me? And they didn't know. So they couldn't interpret the dream for him because he couldn't even remember what the dream was. And so Nebuchadnezzar became so angry that he ordered all the Magi, including Daniel, to be killed. But God revealed both the dream and its interpretation to Daniel, and that saved the lives of all the Magi. So according to Daniel 2, verse 48, Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel ruler over a large province and made him the head of all the Magi in Babylon. So Daniel certainly would have taught the Magi about the true God and the Old Testament Scriptures, and it may be the case that traditions going back to Daniel's time were the source of the messianic expectation that provoked these Magi in Matthew 2 follow this star to Bethlehem. Now, how did they know the meaning of the star? It's probable that they had access to the Old Testament Scriptures. And if they studied the Old Testament, being astrologers, fascinated with stars and planets and meanings like that, the attention of the Magi would have definitely been drawn to Numbers chapter 24, verses 17 through 19, which says this, A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall arise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead forehead of Moab, and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession, Seir, its enemies, will also be a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion, and will destroy the remnant from the city." That is the only passage in the entire Old Testament that speaks of a star 
as a sign. And the reference to a scepter and dominion, also this clearly speaks of a king who was coming. And I think the ancient magi actually figured that much out. And they probably had developed a tradition telling them that a supernatural star would arise to signify the birth of a new king over all of Israel. And of course, their beliefs were just superstition mingled with revealed truth. But somehow God providentially used their expectation to draw them to the truth and move them to become some of the first worshipers of Christ after His birth. The Magi were still men of tremendous power at the time of Christ, but they were foreigners as far as the Roman Empire was concerned. They were not under Herod's command. The land where the Magi most likely came from was part of the Parthian Empire, not the Roman Empire. The Parthian Empire, a large rival empire that was encroaching on the eastern borders of the Roman Empire, so it was the biggest threat to Rome of those days. And since Judea really was the eastern border of the Roman Empire, the Parthians were practically next door. And so when Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, especially talking about a king who was coming, Herod was understandably troubled. These men were powerful men. They had the potential to be kingmakers. They were from a foreign empire, a rival empire. They had access to mysterious occult knowledge, and they were asking about a child who had been born to be king of the Jews. And remember, King of the Jews was the very title Mark Antony had bestowed on Herod when he first gave him power over Judea. That was his title. To have a group of kingmakers from a rival empire come looking for a real king of the Jews, the, the very one prophesied in the Old Testament, this rocked Herod's world. Verse 3 says, Herod was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. The Greek word for troubled there is tarasso, which literally means shaken or agitated. Whenever Herod was troubled, all Jerusalem was always troubled at the same time. He was just that kind of ruler. And Herod's approach with the Magi was typically his political savvy. He tried to deceive them. First, he privately sought more information from his own wise men. Verses 4 through 6 say he inquired of the scribes and chief priests where the Messiah was to be born. They pointed to the prophecy of Micah 5 to Bethlehem. So in verses 7 and 8, Herod directs the Magi to Bethlehem, and he instructs them to report back to him when they found this child so that he can go and worship too. And uh, these Magi must have been shocked to discover when they got there that no one in Israel seemed to know anything about this new king's birth. No one could tell them where he was. It must have seemed very odd to them when they get to Jerusalem and ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And no one even knew what they were talking about. Now, contrast those wise men with Herod. Like him, they were men of power and prestige and influence. Unlike him, they were willing to bow before the newborn king. Herod's heart seethed with hatred for anyone who threatened his power, in this case, hatred for someone he wasn't even sure existed, he'd never heard of before. The Magi's heart burned with desire to meet this child whom they barely knew anything about. In every sense, that Herod was proud and arrogant, these men were willing to humble themselves. Now, let me explode a few more Christmas myths for you. First, notice verse 11 that the wise men, this won't surprise many of you because you hear this every year, people point out that, you know, our, the manger scene on top of your, used to be on top of our television set, but we don't do that anymore. <laughs> the manger scene you have in your house is inaccurate. Because the wise men didn't find Jesus in a stable. Verse 11, they found Him in a house. Second, they did not get there with the shepherds on the night of Jesus' birth. They found Him sometime later. It may have been weeks or months later. Notice verse 7, that Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And then afterward, according to verse 16, He ordered the deaths of every infant, every male infant in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained 
from the wise men. So the visit of the wise men clearly did not occur on the night of Jesus' birth. And it may have been as much as 18 months or two years later. You can take those wise men out of your manger scene this year, okay? <laughs> or just put them over somewhere else on a different table, traveling. <laughs> Verse 11 says, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, they fell down and worshiped him. And by the way, this appears to be true worship. They became believers. They might have begun their quest for this new king for political reasons. Maybe they thought the, the king of the Jews would side with the Parthians against the Romans. That's what the Jews themselves thought. Or perhaps they thought he would be able to unify the two empires. I suppose they might have simply been curious about the long-expected Messiah of the Jews. Whatever their motives at the start of the journey, when they saw him, it says, they fell down and worshiped him. They gave him glory and reverence far beyond what is due to any earthly king. They worshiped him. And I believe God in his grace opened their eyes to something that Jesus' own people didn't see, that He was God in human form. They worshiped Him. The Apostle John wrote, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. That's John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. And I think these men were converted to genuine faith, and that is why being warned in a dream from God not to returned to Herod, according to verse 12, they departed to their own country by another way, rather than reveal the identity of Christ to Herod. All right, now let's turn to a second point. If you're taking notes, we're looking at three stark contrasts to the pride of Herod. The first is the humility of the Magi. The second is the lowliness of Joseph. Again, verse 12, says the wise men were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. They departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Notice how many times in this narrative God speaks to people in dreams. And let me remind you, this is a very rare phenomenon even in Scripture. There are only six places in all the New Testament where God spoke to people in dreams. One is a kind of oblique reference in Matthew 27, 19, where Pontius Pilate's wife warns him not to crucify Christ because she said, I've suffered many things from him this day because of a dream. And all five other references to revelatory dreams in the New Testament appear in the first two chapters of Matthew, all of them in connection with the birth of Christ. Four of them involve Joseph. Matthew 1 verse 20, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and informed him that Mary's pregnancy was brought about by the Holy Spirit. Here in chapter 2 verse 13, he is then warned to flee from Herod and in verse 19, he receives word in a dream that Herod is dead. And verse 22, he is warned in another dream to watch out for Herod's son, Archelaus, who also posed a threat to Christ. Now, Joseph was clearly not a wealthy or influential man. He probably was not a learned man either. He was a tradesman, a carpenter. According to verse, chapter 1, verse 19, he was a just man, a righteous man. In other words, he was a true believer. He was a redeemed man. He was not obviously inherently righteous because there's none righteous, no, not one, Scripture says. But like Abraham, his ancestor, he was justified by a righteousness that was reckoned to him. He believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness. So Joseph was a believer in the God of Israel expectant about the promised Messiah. And I want you to notice that the events of Matthew 2 literally cost Joseph everything he had. According to Luke 2 verse 4, the only reason Joseph and Mary were even in the vicinity of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' birth is that Caesar Augustus had ordered a census that required every person in Israel to return to his ancestral home to be registered with the Roman government. They were taking a census. 
and having left everything he owned, his home and all his possessions, except what they could carry with them, Joseph and Mary would not have been financially or emotionally prepared for an additional journey to Egypt. But now, for the sake of and the safety of Mary's son, they were forced to flee Bethlehem and hide in Egypt until Herod died. And there in Egypt, they no doubt lived in the most extreme kind of poverty. They were foreigners in a hostile land, subsisting on whatever Joseph could earn with his carpentry skills. And let me pick up where I left off, verse 14. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, we don't know how many children were murdered because of Herod's decree. Secular history doesn't even record this particular slaughter, but as one source I read says, there's no reason to doubt it. Even though we don't have any secular account of this event, it could not have been conspicuous in Herod's life, and all that's necessary is to say this was exactly consistent with his character, especially during the latter years of his life. And that's precisely what I said earlier about Herod. He was ruthless in his treatment of any perceived threat to his power. This sort of massacre was typical of him, and it's one of the main reasons the Jews despised Herod no matter what he did to to pretend that he cared for the welfare of the nation. He was a, you know, a Saddam Hussein kind of ruler. His buying food for the nation in a time of famine could not erase the horror of a tyrant who would order babies to be slaughtered because he imagined one of them might someday become a threat to him. Again, we don't know how many infants were actually killed in this slaughter. By the way, If you do the math on this, Herod had to be an older man at this time, like, I don't know, in his 70s or older. So it was entirely unlikely that he would live long enough for an infant born at at the time of Jesus' birth to grow old enough to be a threat to him. But he just couldn't tolerate the thought of anyone, even an infant, as heir of his title, King of the Jews. Now, again, we don't know how many infants were actually killed in this slaughter. Judging from what we know about the population of Bethlehem and its districts at the time, it might have been as few as a dozen or as many as 40, but however many, it highlights the contrast between Joseph and Herod. One is a lowly man who is willing to abandon everything he has in order to protect the Son of God. The other is a ruthless tyrant who would spare nothing to destroy a child that he wasn't really even sure existed. So you see the contrast to Herod's pride in the humility of the Magi, in the lowliness of Joseph, and now finally, notice how Herod's pride contrasts with the meekness of Jesus Himself. Matthew Henry says this, quote, It was a mark of humiliation put upon the Lord Jesus that though He was the desire of all nations, yet His coming into the world was little observed and taken notice of. His birth was obscure and unregarded. Herein He emptied Himself and made Himself of no reputation. If the Son of God must be brought into the world, one might justly expect that He should be received with all the ceremony possible, that crowns and scepters should immediately have been laid at His feet and that the high and mighty princes of the world should have been His humble servants. Such a Messiah as this is what the Jews expected. But we see none of all this. He came into the world, and the world knew Him not. Nigh, He came to His own, and His own received Him not." So let's pick up the text at verse 19. "'When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Egypt, for 
those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the palace, in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So let's just talk about the history of this. The death of Herod fixes the date of this with absolute precision. Herod died in 4 BC, and that means Christ was born sometime before the year 4 BC. But the precise date of Christ's birth is impossible to fix. It might have been anywhere from, he might have been five years old when Joseph brought the family back from exile in Egypt. Whatever the age of Christ when this ordeal ended, He was still essentially in his infancy, totally dependent on his parents, and yet he had already suffered under the most extreme conditions, poverty and persecution and adversity from day one, mostly at the hands of this wicked and arrogant King Herod. Now remember, Christ is sovereign Lord of the universe. He could have chosen coming to earth to arrive with all the pomp and ceremony that befits a king. He could have been born into the family of an earthly king. But instead, Scripture says, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself even further, basically making himself a nobody and a servant to others. And that sort of humility becomes the mark of Jesus' entire earthly life up to and including His death on the cross, which He didn't deserve, but He did in place of sinners. It's an astonishing contrast when you think about it. Herod could have had no power at all unless it was given to him by God, and yet he set about to try to destroy the one person to whom he actually owed honor and reverence. On the other hand, Christ, who is entitled to demand worship from every tongue and every creature, enters the scene as an infant whom no one but even a handful of people even paid attention to. And when Joseph and Mary returned to a relatively normal life, it was in the obscure and detestable region of Nazareth. Even the name Nazareth had come to be equated with everything that is loathsome and despicable, because to call someone a Nazarene was a deliberate slur in John 1.46, Nathaniel says to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the name itself evoked images of what is distasteful and despised, and that's what Matthew 2.23 means, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Fact is, there is no Old Testament prophecy that ever literally states that Jesus would be called a Nazarene, but many Old Testament passages suggest that He would be despised and rejected, and that, I believe, is what this text means. In fact, let me quote Matthew Henry one more time. He says, "'To be called a Nazarene was to be called a despicable man, a man from whom no good was to be expected and to whom no respect was to be paid. The devil first fastened this name on Christ to render him lowly and to prejudice people against him, and it stuck as a nickname to him and his followers. Now this was not particularly foretold by any one prophet, Matthew Henry says, but in general it was spoken of by the prophets that he should be despised and rejected of men, that's Isaiah 53, 2, that he would be a worm and no man, that's Psalm 22, 6, that he should be an alien to his brother, that's Psalm 69. You know, as I said, Indignities like this pursued Christ His entire life, right up to and including His death on the cross. Herod would never have stood for any hint of an insult to His honor, but Christ bore all those insults willingly, silently, leaving us an example and commanding us to follow in His steps. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but He continued entrusting Himself to the one who judges justly. That's 1 Peter 2.23.
And he bore all of that abuse and poverty willingly for our sakes, even though it took him to the cross. And on the cross, he bore the guilt of sin and the full weight of God's wrath on behalf of his people. That's indescribable humility. That's the very opposite of, of Herod. In his lifetime, Herod was one of the most feared and honored men on earth. But, and in fact, he lived in opulence and splendor all of his life, but history remembers him only for his cruelty and his vanity. And it's Christ's birthday that the whole world celebrates during this season. And although even that Christmas celebration has become corrupted by worldly materialism and secular folly, every Christmas is a reminder to me that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." That's Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. To those who confess Him as Lord now and embrace Him as Savior, He gives eternal life and full and free forgiveness. As Jesus Himself said in John 5, 24, "'Whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. And again, that's what Christmas is really about. Matthew 1.21, He shall save His people from their sins. That promise is the whole message of the gospel in a single sentence. He shall save His people from their sins. The Magi got it. Joseph clung faithfully to the promise, and Christ humbly fulfilled it in both His life and His death. And I hope that will be the singular focus of your thoughts as we celebrate and remember Christ's birth during this month. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word and the facts that are all tangled with this story that show us Your great providence, Your infinite wisdom, and the love and mercy that redeems us from our sin. May we live in this world, in a way that honors Christ, we pray in His name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.